Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. This week I talk with Jackie Valley. Valley is a reporter at the Las Vegas Sun. Just about one year ago, Valley published a seven part series called Grace Through Grief. The series followed Arturo Martinez and his two young sons as they dealt with the brutal murder of their wife and daughter, their mother and sister. The murders happened in 2012, and Valley covered it as breaking news on her cops' beat. Valley got to know Martinez through her reporting. Eventually, he allowed her remarkable access as he recovered from the murders, both physically and emotionally. This was Valley's first foray into a large, long-form project. She studied journalism at Kent State University and completed a Dow Jones copy editing internship at the Virginian Pilot in 2009. She joined the Las Vegas Sun one year later. As usual, we've linked to some of Valley's work, including Grace Through Grief, on our website. You can find that at www.gangritapodcast.com. Jackie, thanks for joining Gangry the Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, can you talk about your story, um, Grace Through Grief? Um, maybe give a little bit of a, uh, tell us a little bit about what the story is about. Sure. Um, well, what started is there was a horrible crime in Las Vegas, um, almost two years ago, a, uh, family of five, father, mother, and then they had three children came home to their Las Vegas home one night. And in the middle of the night, a random intruder who was later identified as Brian Clay broke into the home and, um, sexually assaulted and killed the mother and 10-year-old daughter and severely injured the father, Arturo. Um, two days later, or actually about a day and a half later, the little boy, Christopher, who was nine years old at the time, walked to his elementary school a few blocks away and reported the crime. Um, Arturo had been so beaten with a hammer that he didn't have a way to communicate to his sons how to get help and couldn't get help himself. Um, so that's how it started. Um, I helped cover the breaking news that day. Um, was on the corner of their street getting information. And it was just one of those stories where you, you knew it was bad from the beginning, just based on how the police were acting in terms of giving out information. And, uh, you know, the more we learned, the more terrible it became. And so um, I guess I should clarify that the suspect has been arrested. He hasn't gotten to trial yet. Um, that's been delayed once again. But... Um, after the breaking news happened, um, been in touch with the family, and of course all the media was, and so there was a lot of attention on it. Um, but I had hoped to do something, you know, more substantial, and uh, little by little got to know the family, and they ended up agreeing to letting me follow them for the next year. And by that, I mean the father, Arturo, um, his two younger boys, and his relatives. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how did you go about proposing um, this type of reporting to Arturo, given that, you know, um, you were going to be hanging around with him a lot uh, to pull something off like this? Well, you know, it happened 
almost naturally. I initially talked to my editor here about, you know, maybe it would be interesting to do a story the day he leaves the hospital as a follow-up. Well, as you can imagine, it was very chaotic for the family at that time and so many things up in the air that that didn't work out. And so, but I'd been keeping in touch with his sister and his brother-in-law and um, had mentioned to them that I was interested in following him and they were very receptive to it. And so I, you know, attended a couple small functions. You know, I went to the funeral, first of all, um, but then there were a couple fundraisers. I went to one at a boxing gym and met him. At that point, he couldn't even talk. Um, So, you know, I explained what I was hoping to do, but, you know, it really wasn't until I would say late June um, I decided that I wanted to be as clear as possible with him. So he agreed to meet with me and um, his sister, uh, brother-in-law, and a couple close friends. And I really just proposed it. You know, I said I wasn't exactly sure, you know, what the final product would look like, but I was just hoping to follow him and his family for a good chunk of time and, you know, kind of be a fly on the wall, not get in the way or, you know, cause more pain for them in any way. But I wanted to be really upfront because I didn't want him to be confused or regret anything later on. So that's how it started. It was literally a sit-down meeting in his boxing gym, and he agreed. And so, you know, from there then, you know, we got to know each other a lot better. And it was actually amazing because initially he could barely speak. And then by the end, you know, we're having full-blown conversations, and now we, you know, chat on the phone. So that's been really wonderful to see. Yeah, that's. I think you got to see such a long story arc. How long did you follow him then for? Uh, well, for the whole rest of the year, like I said, I you know met them in May. The crime happened in April. Met him in May, and then slowly started following him uh, during the summer. Uh, we did a lot of the physical therapy. Layla, the photographer, and I went to a lot of his physical therapy appointments beginning in July and August. And then all the way through that one-year anniversary, the last part of the story um, took place on the actual one-year anniversary. So it was a full full year grant. We didn't know him the first two months mm-hmm. as well. We're, uh, I'm assuming you were you cover you cover cops and courts. Is that right? Yeah, I I do a little bit less now. I'm a little bit more of a general assignment reporter. Um, but yeah, from at that time, I was covering mostly crime and courts, and they had just put me on courts. It was sort of a hybrid role, and it actually ended up being this huge blessing in disguise because it taught me how to look for some of these court documents that ultimately helped me write the story, um, one being the grand jury transcript. So that ended up being super helpful, um, plus it gave me an idea of you know who to talk to in the court system and how that all worked, and you know we actually had one shot at attending the uh, a court hearing with him where he was in the same room as the suspect, Brian Clay, um, because the trial that was set out so far was going to be beyond the one-year anniversary. Um, so in a sense, we just it worked better than I could have ever imagined covering courts at the same time. Yeah, you mentioned that one, um, there's a scene, I think it's in Chapter 3, um, where Arturo is in the courtroom, and, uh, and obviously you're there kind of watching, um, mm-hmm. and he listens the argument between the lawyers as to whether or not his wife and daughter were alive or dead when they were sexually assaulted. Um, what was that like for you as a reporter to kind of be watching him as he's hearing all of this? 
Well, it was pretty brutal just because the subject matter was, first of all, never, I had never heard that type of argument in a courtroom, and it just seemed so grim to decide, you know, what level of charges based on whether someone who's already dead was, you know, barely alive or dead at the time that they were being sexually assaulted. And, you know, knowing that this was his wife and then, you know, innocent 10-year-old daughter as well was just painful. And, you know, you could see him, you know, just crouching. He was, you know, holding that cross. Um, and his sister, really, it bothered her. She, you know, was just as emotional. Um, it was it was hard to watch is all, <laughs> all I can say. And, you know, when we left, he... I actually felt bad trying to ask him about it after the fact because it had been such brutal testimony inside the courtroom that, you know, you feel guilty having to pick their brains with even more questions. And uh, you know, that was when he said, he, you know, I have no words, which in a sense kind of summed up the whole experience for him and all of us in that courtroom probably. Were there other moments in the reporting when you felt like maybe I shouldn't be here? Um, let's see. I want to say shouldn't be here because he was so open. And that's one thing that continues to shock me to this day is that, you know, this random stranger had committed a horrible act on his family. And yet, you know, weeks later, he let me, another random stranger, into his life. Um, so, but he was always open and, like, you, you know, would tell me that, Part of the reason he agreed is because he needed someone to talk to who wasn't a family member or a therapist or, um, you know, a close friend. And um, But there were definitely moments where it was hard being there, and I didn't want to add to his pain by, like, getting super emotional as well. Um, but the one moment that always sticks out in my mind is when we were at the gravesite and... Um, little boy Alejandro who was four at the time and then turned five over the summer. Sometimes it's hard to tell with kids how much they comprehend, and especially with Alejandro because Christopher, his older brother, had tried to shelter him from so much of the, the gore inside the house that morning. Um, but, you know, we're at the grave site where his mom and sister are buried, and um, just out of the blue, Chris, or Alejandro runs up and kneels down, or flops down basically on top of the grave and kisses it. And it was really hard not to get super emotional at that point because it was a small act, but it was so symbolic of what these kids have been through and how it's always going to stick with them. And in that moment, I knew he understood everything just as well, even though he's so much younger. Uh, you mentioned, uh, and there's an, in the editor's note, uh, it talks about how you reported the story, but it specifically mentions that you, you didn't, attempt to interview the the two boys. Can you talk about why you made that decision? Yeah, you know, we talked about that a lot, that my editor, Tom Gorman, and I in the beginning, because um, we were getting to know the family, so it's not like I needed to pester them with questions right off the bat. A lot of it just came naturally through the course of several months. But that was one thing we always, you know, were going back and forth about. And from day one, and this is what I told Arturo and his family when I met them in the boxing gym, was I didn't want to do any more harm to them or cause any more pain. And, you know, he was very open and was like, oh, talk to the boys. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, ask them about their mom and their sister. And I did do that stuff. But what I didn't want to do is have them relive that day. Um, miraculously, they slept through the attack. It happened at night. And 
we'll never know whether the suspect even knew they were there, but somehow, you know, they survived and Christopher or Alejandro sneezed the, the next morning and woke Christopher up. Um, so Christopher saw everything and Alejandro did too to a certain extent. But it just didn't seem right for me to make them relive all that again. They're, they're so young and Christopher had already relived it through the grand jury testimony. And if you read the grand jury transcripts, it's amazing the detail that he gives. And because they're a public record, I was able to use that along with Arturo's memories to, to mesh the two together to write that first story describing the event. So it ended up not really being necessary. And um, I, I think it was the best choice. And we wanted to let people know or let readers know that, you know, the boys, we didn't, we weren't super invasive with the boys in this story. That was one of our main goals was not to cause them any more hurt or pain. And I think it was the right call. The, um, when did you uh, when when did you and your editors actually I want to I want to backtrack a little bit. Um, how did you pitch this story to your editor? Like, tell this is what I want to do. <laughs> kind of take well, me through that conversation. Yeah, like I said before, I had covered the breaking story, and it, you know sometimes you just have those stories that stick with you that aren't just the daily ten inch story you knock out. So, and this was certainly one of those that gained a lot of attention in Las Vegas. And so initially, he and I talked about. Well, let's do a follow-up when Arturo leaves the hospital and goes home, and it's like a coming-home story. Um, but then that it all happened so quickly, and it was so chaotic for the family that didn't work out. So I talked to Tom, and I was like, well, I'm just going to do my best to try, try to get to know them and you know, ease my way into it. Nothing was for sure guaranteed. Um, so little by little, I started that summer, talked to Arturo about what I hoped to do. Um, meanwhile, talked to our photographer, Leila Navidi, and she was excited about it. So she and I started, you know, attending a physical therapy appointments and hanging out at the gym and spending time with, with, at family events. And so by the time we got to the end of August, Arturo knew that he was going to get that other brain surgery to fix his skull fragments. And so once we got the clearance from the doctors to be there for that part and attended, um, I think that's when we knew that we really had, like, a really a story that had a lot of momentum at that point. And so Layla and I went back to Tom and uh, showed him everything we had to, up to that point and talked about what we thought we might be able to get as the months progressed. And immediately he was on board, and <laughs> there really wasn't much conversation about that from there other than, you know, do what you need to do, and now let's just talk about you know, writing and making sure we get everything we need. It wasn't a hard sell, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Right, right. How did you, um, how did it run the newspaper? It ran uh, seven days, a seven-part series um, on the one-year anniversary through the rest of the week. And uh, in front page every day, we devoted the entire front page to it. And the Las Vegas Sun is unique in that it's part of a joint operating agreement with our competitor, the Review Journal, and so we actually, the Review Journal has all the advertising, and we have like eight to 12 blank pages. So, and then we're an insert within the RJ. So the story actually, because it's so long, took up a good portion of each day's paper. So that's how it ran in the paper. And then we built um, a pretty unique standalone website for the series itself to further showcase um, photos and, and video that Layla did. 
Yeah, I know you mentioned um, when we were talking just before we started recording that you had done an internship uh, at the Virginian Pilot. And yeah. they always, you know, they had Lon Wagner who did all the, the serials, uh, the serial narratives. Did, did that, did you learn anything there that rubbed off and made you want to, tr- to tackle a serial narrative? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I had taken in college a um, non-traditional writing class with my favorite professor. And from that moment, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. Um, but then I ended up getting that internship at the pilot. And it was a, a Dow Jones copy at anyone. So you don't turn that down. It's a great opportunity. It was a scholarship. Um, and I was super excited to go to the pilot because I knew that they champion that type of journalism, honestly. And so, you know, when you're copy editing, it's just such a great experience because you're reading so much copy that you learn how to be a better writer and reporter and pick up on the little details that the reporters remember to ask that you see in their copy. So I wouldn't trade it for the world. I had such a fabulous summer there, and I learned so much that helps me every single day. And I think that anyone given the opportunity should do a copy editing stint, whether it's an internship or job or even filling in for a few days because you just learn so much and definitely helps you become a better reporter. Were there any stories that um, stuck out in your mind that maybe not that that you were maybe modeling this one after or like just anything that you thought I want to do something like that and, and maybe this story is going to fit into that mold? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I did a story. I read a story. Um, done by the Baltimore Sun many years ago, and it was about um, pediatric palliative care. So it was about the, the end of life for this, I think he was about eight years old, maybe a little bit younger. And um, I interviewed the reporter for my um, media ethics class in college, and so we had to pick a topic. And so I, I wanted to do something about narrative journalism because that's what I was interested in, and the idea of you know how do you try to stay objective and yet also be a human being while reporting these type of stories. And that one stuck with me because it was kind of the same type of deal. This reporter spent a lot of time with the mother and her son who was dying and you know had a lot of the same questions. You're dealing with the, not only a child, but also some people who are grieving. So I know that was probably, <laughs> I read that, you know, four years, three or four years earlier, but that's definitely one that sticks out in my mind. Um, but I make a point to read as much narrative journalism as I can. I, you know, try to scour the museum and look at front pages to find stories that I can then go online and send to myself to read later. So it was probably a whole bunch, <laughs> to be honest. Um, Jackie, we're going to take a short break. Um, uh, we'll come back and we'll continue talking about Grace Through Grief, which ran in the Las Vegas Sun. This is Gangrey the Podcast. We'll be right back. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. 
Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm here talking with Jackie Valley of the Las Vegas Sun. Uh, she wrote the story, Grace Through Grief. It ran in the newspaper over seven days about one year ago. Uh, and it's a story about a family that was rocked through by a, just a horrific crime. Um, Jackie, one thing that, that I'm curious about uh, is that a lot of people who would do a serial narrative on something like this would focus on the crime itself. Uh, and not necessarily the recovery. Can you talk about what drew you to the recovery? Because there's very little about the crime itself in the story. Uh, it's it's completely about the recovery. What what drew you to that? Yeah, because I and that was one thing I guess being a crime reporter is you know we write so often about these horrible things that happen, but you know what do, do these victims' lives look like? You know, a week, two weeks, two months, two years down the line. It just it fascinates me how. Something so horrible can happen, and you know, yet people have to go back to their, their jobs and their lives, and so that's why I wanted to focus on it. And the crime itself was so heinous, and I I remember being kind of worried actually with the first story because we knew we had to recreate that scene, and the first story is very jarring and somewhat graphic. But I, I think people needed to understand the enormity of the crime to then appreciate how these. Arturo and his two boys and the rest of his family were trying to put together the pieces again. And so, you know, we did focus on the recovery throughout the rest. And another thing I told my editor in the beginning is that, you know, his wife and daughter, um, Yadi and Carla, yes, they had died, but I felt like they were characters in the story, even though they weren't physically here anymore. And so, you know, I hope readers by the time they finished the story had a, a good understanding of who those two people were as well and you know what they meant to this family and because um, they certainly will always be remembered and never forgotten but that's why we did it I didn't want to go back to the crime itself over and over because you know it sure it's, it's with them every day but they also were trying to move on and do the best they could um, did the fact that you were that you were doing a serial change and that you were doing something so so large uh, change the way you reported the story or change the way you you wrote uh, the writing process? Uh, I was pretty meticulous with my notes. Obviously, I made the first thing I did was I always bought nicer notebooks um, with like patterns and colors on them from like Target or Walmart. I didn't want to lose anything, and I was worried that if I just used the standard steno pads, that it would all get jumbled together, and then that would be a disaster in the end. So that's the first thing I did, and then I um, tried to be as regimented as possible in terms of reporting and then um, typing up my notes. And so a lot of times I would type them up, and I'd have like little scenes and sentences strung together with lots of descriptions because I didn't want that to you know, be lost in my memory a few months down the line. So that's how I kept organized. And then, let's see, I would say like two, maybe three or four months into it, um, my editor and I went out to lunch one day. And thankfully, thanks to him so much because he helped me really 
tear it down and outline what the possible stories could be. Because I hadn't, at that point, I didn't know how we should split it up and what made the most sense. So he was crucial in that development part of it. And then starting in January is when I really did a lot of the intensive writing. Because by that point, you know, we weren't, we not only spent a lot of time with the family, but then we were doing all these other interviews with, you know, police and the attorneys and um, family, friends and neighbors. And so by January, I had a lot of that together and I could start writing. And um, so I basically did a, took a story at a time and did them and, you know, finished right on the dot before the one year anniversary. (laughs) The last piece, were you you were you had to have been still writing that last piece as the others were running? Oh yeah, I was actually. And uh, funny backstory on that is, I got a really bad cold, and so the day they were having the um, the blessing of the gravesite, I had a doctor's appointment, and I ended up passing out at the doctor's appointment like an hour or two before that started. But luckily, like made it there and um, got to see it and uh, write it. So yeah, we were writing the final story that week. It was still a fluid story. Um, granted, we kind of knew we had all the other parts written, so it was a matter of adding in whatever transpired on the actual one-year anniversary for the family. So it was a bit of a gamble, but, you know, it wasn't. It was a very natural story. We weren't aiming to get one thing or another. Just whatever happened was part of the story. When uh, when did the newspaper decide to to do the full on kind of multimedia treatment? Um, like, wh- when did that come about? We talked about it early on. I would say before Christmas, we talked about it fairly heavily. Um, but people get busy, and there are other things going on in the newspaper. So the actual process of putting it all together probably didn't start until about February, and then very intensive throughout March, getting it together. Um, and this was the first, well, we'd heard that the Las Vegas Sun had done project websites before, but this was a different format than what they attempted before in the, you know, the way the stories were set up. A lot of the other projects were like home pages with just a bunch of links, and this one was definitely more of a, a book feel, I guess you could say. <laughs> supposed to read like a story more than a, a project, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. There's some, so, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no. I mean, so the photographer and I, like we worked very closely with the, the web developers um, in terms of getting the right look and feel and making sure photos were in the right places that corresponded correctly. So it was truly a team effort. It was a lot of fun though. Can you talk about um, how you worked with a photographer? Because there are some stunning uh, images uh, throughout the piece, uh, especially on the website, the way that they show up on the website. Yeah, well, first of all, Leila Navidi is great. She's a fabulous photographer, and she puts her heart and soul into it. So I think you can tell on her photos. Um, and we worked together before a little bit, but never to the same degree. And so we got a lot closer throughout the process um and my, around the same time actually my desk ended up moving and so I sat right close to her right next to her actually and so at the very beginning of this we had taken a day or afternoon 
and there was this whiteboard next to our desks. And she and I just sat there and brainstormed, like, what are the possible scenarios the family could go through? What are the, some of the things we know will come up, you know, in terms of holidays and milestones? And so we had this huge list of stuff that we wanted to get or knew we needed to get. And so that was our first step. But then we worked hand in hand. There was rarely a day or a moment when we weren't there together. Um, and I, you know, I think that tells we wanted the pictures to flow right along with the story. And, um, and she and I also just did a few missions by ourselves in terms of one day she and I just took a drive to see their the house that they had foreclosed on that forced them to move back to Robin Street. Um, so she was as much of an integral piece of this project as I was. You know, it wouldn't be the same if we hadn't worked so closely together. What was the response like to the story? Did you get a lot of feedback? Yeah, we did. And we were a little bit worried because this is a Hispanic family and, you know, he didn't have U.S. residency. And you know how commenters can be. They can be vicious. And so we were actually expecting that to get a lot of um, negative feedback. And somehow, surprisingly, the exact opposite happened. We had very little negative feedback. And just scores of emails saying how touched they were by the story and, you know, they were, they had remembered the, the breaking news of the crime and had always wondered what happened to this family. So they were excited to see the, the months, you know, everything the family went through and how they were, for the most part, doing very well. And um, so definitely a lot of calls even from um, district attorneys and um, you know, the other people in the police force who had somehow been involved in the crime scene that day, as well as, like I said, just random people in the community who were touched by it. So that, it was, it was nice. I, I didn't expect that. I was really nervous, but it was, it was good to see that people in the community really did care about this family. What did, what did Arturo think of the story, the stories? Oh, man, I was super worried about that. I The day it started running, I my stomach was in knots, and I just was waiting to hear something from the family. And then I saw his sister posted on Facebook, and I was like, okay, that's a good sign. Um, but, you know, it never dawned on me that he might not read it, and that's exactly what happened. He started reading it, and he said that he just couldn't. And he looked at it and told us that it looked beautiful and that he trusted us, but that he couldn't read it. And it makes perfect sense now. I, I don't know why I didn't think of that before. But, you know, I don't, to this day, I don't think he's read the entire thing. But his, his relatives and friends had, and they were all giving him good feedback about it. So, you know, he was comfortable and thought that we had done a good job on it um, based on what others were telling him. So that's how that ended up playing out. And um, so, yeah. Did you say you still stay in touch with him? I do, yeah. I saw him probably about two and a half weeks ago, he um, has married his Ella now, and so they are together, and he and the two boys moved out of his sister's house, and now with his Ella, they rent a house in North Las Vegas in a, a newer, nicer area. Um, so we went out for dinner, the five of us, and he's back to work. He went back to work in the fall, so he was uh, previously a foreman, but now he's working just as a electrician and he's hoping to work his way back up to being a foreman 
well, he gets used to everything, but he doesn't seem to be having any problems at work. He's uh, they're actually working a lot of overtime on a project right now, so he's back into a daily routine. Um, the latest news is that he did lose the the boxing gym. Um, it just he was working a deal with this other semi-famous boxer who was partnering with him in it, um, but the deal ended up not working out, and he wasn't able to keep the gym. So that's no longer his. But I think there's actually kind of a silver lining in that because he is working so much, and the gym did take a lot of his personal time. And so it's, I think, probably for the best, and he admitted as such, that it's good that he can now just go straight home to his family and help Christopher and Alejandro with their homework and just have that family time rather than having a gym to take care of on top of his normal job as an electrician. Well, do you uh, have plans to do another big piece like this anytime soon? I hope to. Nothing as big. I just I spent the past couple of months um, doing a story about a family that recently had quintuplets in Las Vegas. So now they have nine kids total. Um, but that was just one story. Um, but I'm always looking for a, for a good people story. You know, whether it's this long, who knows? I guess the story dictates the length and how much time you put into something, but I'd love to find another story. It'll be hard to find another story that, you know, I care about and feel as passionately about, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Well, Jackie, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We've been talking to Jackie Valley. Valley is a reporter at the Las Vegas Sun. Just about one year ago, she published a seven-part series called Grace Through Grief. As usual, We've linked to that story on our website, www.gangridapodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at gangrypodcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.